Today is December 11th. On this day in history, December 11th, 1640, what we know as the Root and Branch Petition was submitted to the Long Parliament in London by the Puritans. This petition was signed by 1,500 Londoners insisting the complete undoing of the English episcopacy. It called for its, and I quote, roots and branches to be abolished, end quote. Such imagery was borrowed from Malachi 4.1. The more insistent Puritans disagreed with the more moderate Puritans on the details, but at the heart of the root and branch petition was a disagreement over church government, something still debated into our own day. Eventually, Parliament passed the Root and Branch Bill. This was precipitated by a growing dislike for Charles I and his religious authority. It became generally accepted by all that directives for the church should not come down from political high office. And the corollary criticism was that when you have an Episcopal type of government in the church, it will always be corrupted by politicians and church prelates who are more interested in power than in the teachings of Scripture. In this sense, the root and branch petition had more to do with theology than ecclesiology. King Charles I called for the long parliament because he needed support and money, but it backfired on him, and the House of Commons determined that the king had too much authority in both the civil and religious realms. Even still, while a majority viewed bishops, and especially the archbishop, as corrupt, unnecessary, and unbiblical offices, there was not agreement as to what type of church government would be best. One faction preferred a state church governed by a committee or a commission, which would replace the office of bishop. Another faction desired to adopt Scottish Presbyterianism, which gave central authority to local congregations governed collectively by ministers and elders. And yet another group, the Independents, wanted each congregation to have sole authority in religious affairs. The breach was too wide for a unified settlement so that Parliament basically wanted Presbyterianism while the army favored a church authority independent and congregational. The conclusion on the matter, however, was determined by the House of Lords who refused to accept the bill and the Episcopal form of church government remained. Anglicanism did not go away and the result was seen eventually in Puritans migrating to the New World for religious freedom from the tyranny of governmental overreach. But as I said, the issue was not so much church government for the Puritans who wanted to disassociate from the Church of England. Church government was but the symptom of a deeper problem. Governmental overreach served as the branches, but the root issue lied deeper. An unwillingness to practically follow sola scriptura, the central motto of the Protestant Reformation. A study of the purest of Puritans, not the moderate variety, reveals an increasing frustration with gospel-professing Protestants who were more willing to adhere to the standards set by church officials above them who received both position and direction from politicians, i.e. the king. Those within the church who say they believe in the authority of Scripture should also adhere to the sufficiency of Scripture in order to be consistent in their affirmation of sola scriptura. There are certain spheres of authority God has ordained. The church sphere roots its authority in the scriptures alone. Now, this doesn't mean that there are no human authorities, but that such human authorities are men called by God who meet the qualifications of 1 Timothy 3. They are men who derive their authority from scripture. Indeed, they have no real authority apart from scripture. They are called by God and set apart by the church with the understanding that they act for God's benefit alone. But today there are many church leaders more than willing to take their directives from the civil magistrates. Such a willingness could be rooted in corruption. It may also be rooted in cowardice. 
and in some cases perhaps compromise for an unwarranted saving of face before the watching world. But be it corruption, cowardice, or compromise, the church must not use Romans 13 as a text to justify complete obedience to civil magistrates when such civil magistrates violate the voice of the only true king, namely the Lord Jesus Christ. Regardless of your particular preference of church government, as a Christian you have a duty to obey the voice of one king. King Jesus speaks through his holy word, the sacred scriptures. It is therefore not merely a matter of not keeping with the Protestant principle of sola scriptura for church leaders to insist upon blind obedience to civil magistrates, but it is actually a violation of the directives of King Jesus himself. It goes against the pattern set by the apostles who were willing to obey God and did obey God over man. But the type of evangelicalism we find ourselves in during this period of church history is one where compromise will inevitably lead to cowardice and cowardice inevitably to corruption. The issue of religious liberty is one founded in the scriptures. The problem is not church government. Corrupt church government is only a symptom of a deeper problem, namely bad theology. This is why it shouldn't surprise us that central to the Root and Branch petition, signed by 1,500 bold Londoners, listed a series of theological topics they feared were being threatened by corrupt prelates who took their cues from the civil magistrates. The problem, as outlined in the petition, was a growing fear that ministers were marked by a certain timidity to boldly preach truth lest they find disfavor with church prelates who answered to the civil magistrate. And what were the cherished doctrines at risk of not being heard because of a lack of courage from the pulpit? Well, doctrines such as predestination, total depravity, Sabbath observance, election. And then you had all of the concerns regarding human inventions in public worship. Now let's see. How does mainstream evangelicalism match up to the timidity of the church in the 1640s, not even 150 years after the Reformation? Well, today there is no authority in the pulpit. Predestination and election are hated doctrines for the most part. Total depravity has been replaced by self-esteem and pop psychology. The idea of man's free will and universal grace is coded with language of God loves everyone just the way they are. And the worship of most evangelical churches is fraught with too many human inventions even to name. And now, now, the issue of the Sabbath is under attack. Church leaders are willing to forsake the assembling of themselves together and their churches, or if they do so, are following a list of restrictions that make gathering difficult, inconvenient, or foreign to church practice for over 2,000 years. It's hard to argue that social distancing among the fellowship of God's people is a biblical principle. It's time for another root and branch petition. God's people must be willing to sign on to a bolder brand of Christianity, one heralded by our Puritan forefathers. The answer is not a new form of church government. God's people need bold pulpiteers who unflinchingly preach the whole counsel of God's word. Instead of planting seeds of fear and compromise in the pew, the church needs preachers who fear nobody but God. We should pray for this. We should pray that the spirit of Puritanism, which fueled the formation of the United States, would return. Apart from authoritative preaching, a true reformation cannot occur. So pray for your pastor. Pray for your elders. And if need be, pray them out. But above all, trust that Jesus will build his church, and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. Put your faith and hope in King Jesus. 
Listen to his voice, for he is the one and only true king. This is Andrew Smith, and you've been listening to Today in Church History. For more information about this podcast, you can visit pastorandrewsmith.com.